Thomas Jefferson was young when he drafted the words for the Continental Congress meeting in Philadelphia in the summer of 1776. He wrote, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights and among these are the life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. When I was young, I was bothered by those words. I was actually angry at those words. I was bothered by the contradiction between Jefferson's words and his deeds. After all, Jefferson not only was a slave owner, he was an articulate defender of slavery and helped organize the anxiety among slave owners about Northern attempts to limit slavery. He articulated the doctrine of slave states' rights. He created that, what he called the fire bell of sedition. Some men and women apparently were not created equal in Jefferson's mind. And I was aware that Jefferson propagated and gave legitimacy to the idea of Indian removal writing that all America's indigenous people should be sent west of the Mississippi. If they resisted, they should be exterminated. As a descendant of the Cherokees who were removed to the west, Texas is where we went, I concluded he didn't think much of the Creator. After all, the Creator had asked the Cherokee to watch over the Great Smoky Mountain. And it was hard for him to do that from Texas. Jefferson's life bothered me as well. His life was a model of oblivious patriarchy and class privilege. But I was a judgmental 25-year-old. When I grew older, I realized that Jefferson was a student of John Locke. And once he accepted John Locke's notion of social contract, that was it for him. According to Locke, men are endowed by their creator with reason. They enter into society because it benefits them, and they maintain their individuality and selfish essence. And if society ceases to meet their needs, they have the right to duty to dissolve their ties to society and to withdraw from the social contract, take their toys and go home. Governments are instituted among men, and when government is no longer working for the men, they should dissolve their ties and, when appropriate, make a whole new social contract. Now, essential to this notion was that males, nowhere does Locke mention women as constituting society, are in a state of nature individuals. And they create society as an act of will. And this philosophy is interesting, and it is known as classical liberalism. Its individualism is the prevailing ideology of the United States in all decades 
including this one, since 1776. The presumption in this way of thinking is society is somehow artificial, that institutions are somehow always problematic and always a contrivance, and commitments are to be avoided. It is also the building block of classical economic theory. In a free market, every buyer and every seller will maximize their self-interest because every individual is rational and well-informed. <laughs> Economics 101, maybe the third day into the course. Thus, pursuing our own happiness, in Jefferson's words, will somehow maximize the well-being of society as a whole. Locke had put it differently in, in, in some ways. I mean, Jefferson's lifting Locke's ideas, but Locke had said, God endowed the individual with life, liberty, and the pursuit of property. So happiness is property. And it is the individual who owns property in this idea. And it rests on the bold assertion that selfishness is good. And the market is free and the state is fair. So the Declaration of Independence is a declaration dissolving a social contract. And in that document we read that the king has created monopolies and unfair economic conditions, and therefore the contract between the subject and sovereign can be dissolved. And every year at this time, we come together and we commemorate Martin Luther King's legacy and life and what he contributed to a, the United States. And it's good to remind ourselves of what a tremendous influence he's had on us on a tremendous influence he's had on our thinking and our assumptions. It's good to remind ourselves because he's put, Martin Luther King was developing a new vision, a new vision that permeates our hymnal and our thinking and our Sunday school in a lot of ways. We call it the inescapable network of mutuality. It's all through our principles and purposes. Uh, we understand that social justice is being with each other because, as he said, Martin Luther King said to our General Assembly in 1966, all I'm saying is this, all life is interconnected, all life is interrelated, and that somehow we are all tied together. If for some strange reason I can never, I can, for some strange reason I can never be what I ought to be, until you are what you ought to be. And you can never be what you want to be until I am what I ought to be. This is the interrelated structure of all reality. Now, we may have heard these words so often that we don't really see what a revolution in values or what a revolution in thought this is a vision of human relationships that stands in bold contrast to classical liberalism because it's arguing we are human because we live in society. Our individuality arises as a gift 
of community, a gift of our relationships, a gift that we're nurtured in by our parents. And what makes us human is not an individualized endowment of reason or liberty, but a society that is realizing its potential by endowing each person with relationships. And in a just society is not realized by the pursuit of self-interest, but by realizing our own happiness, or by realizing our own happiness at, uh, without regard to others, but humanity lives in community. We nurture language and music and we dance together. We became human by telling stories to each other. We become human by singing to each other. Communities discovered horticulture and medicine and wisdom together. Great literature and philosophy and science arises out of our social creativity. We are the storytelling monkeys. And at best, we make love, not war. We've always gotten by with a lot of help from our friends. In other words, we survived as a species because we learned to live together, work together, think together, because we learned together to care for our children and for each other. Our learning, our genius, our technology is not solely the pursuit of great individuals doing great deeds, although patriarchy, patriarchal societies love their heroes, and they always have statues of heroes, but because we learned the benefits of humanity and mutuality and built each other's experience, experiments and successes and learned from each other and improved on each other. So Martin Luther King offers a radically different perspective, different from Jefferson and Locke. His perspective was based on the primacy of community, and we begin to see our world and all our crises and all our problems facing our world as involving this contrast. So much of our contrast in, in our struggles in the United States, even today and in the world today, is between these two opposing concepts, selfishness, and mutuality. Or to put it another way, King himself put it in his book, where do we go from here, chaos or community? Where do we go? He says that we have to embrace community, we have to embrace this kind of way of life because it's, it's counter to how we've been enculturated. Learn to cooperate, learn to embrace these things, or we, the society will descend into chaos. This is 1968. For King, the notion of mutuality of solidarity was the heart of his vision for social justice. Human liberation is a journey toward wholeness, and we can not be free in only part of our lives. And while some of us may be unable to be what we're called to be, that makes us all limited in being what we must be. In his la the last pages of the last book that Martin Luther King wrote, 
he writes, the stability of the world's house, which is ours, will involve a revolution in values. To accompany the scientific and freedom revolutions that are engulfing the world. We must rapidly shift from a thing-oriented society to a person-oriented society. When machines and computers and profit motives and property rights are considered more important than people, the giant triplets of racism, materialism, and militarism are incapable of being conquered. King, writing in 1968, understands that we are formed and transformed by relationship and fundamentally the old slogan of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is corrupt. That our priorities must be the maximization of every person, people before things, relationship rather than control, a liberty-based on maximizing every, every person. King sees three interlocking systems, racism, materialism, and militarism that reinforce a thing-oriented society and that condemn humanity to division, oppression, and violence, impoverishment, and the destruction of human potential. It is remarkable that King argues that we cannot tackle these problems and then till, unless we participate in a revolution in values. Think of it, we can't tackle racism. We can't tackle militarism. We can't tackle materialism without a revolution in values saying yes to a new understanding of mutuality and saying no to individualism and selfishness of classical liberalism, of embracing our common humanity instead. King continues this analysis arguing that the choice is chaos. The inevitable result of selfishness and the pursuit of power is a breakup of society. He writes, genuine revolution of values means in the final analysis that our loyalties must become ecumenical rather than sectional. Every nation must now develop an overriding loyalty to humanity as a whole in order to preserve the best of their individual societies. I don't hear the campaign candidates saying that quite yet. Do you? <laughs> Our commitment must be to humanity as a whole. Love is the key that unlocks the door which leads to ultimate reality. And we are now faced with the fact that tomorrow is today. We are confronted with the fierce urgency of now, 1968. Fierce urgency of now. And he concludes, in this unfolding conundrum of life and history, there is such a thing as being too late. Procrastination is still the thief of time. We may cry out desperately for time to pause 
In her passage, the time is deaf to every plea and rushes on. Over the bleached bones and jumbled residues of numerous civilizations are written the pathetic words, too late. There is an inevitable book of life that faithfully records our records of negligence or our neglect. The moving finger writes and having writ moves on. We are to have a choice today, nonviolent coexistence or violence and annihilation in the pursuit of me. And then he says, this may mean, well be humankind's last chance to choose between chaos or community. Within a few months after publication of the book, King was dead. His influence on our country has been profound and his influence on Unitarian Universalism has been revolutionary. We were there, those of us who were alive in 1968, might remember we were the penultimate classical liberals. We were, we just loved our individualism. King's example of nonviolent and people-affirming witness has moved us to recognize the depths of our interconnections and as we have come to see that love, love is not a sentiment, but a transformative verb, force, that can remake the world. We have come to embrace community. We have come to learn to stand on the side of love.